Amen. Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning and good to have those of you that are joining us from your homes this morning uh, via live stream. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23 this morning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. We're going to be looking at the passage from verses 26 through 48. Verses 26 through 48 of Luke chapter 23. We're almost to the end of the story of Jesus. Obviously, the whole Bible is the Word of God. But I believe that the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is particularly holy ground because we are dealing with the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe that it will take all of eternity to even begin to fathom the significance and the scope of the supreme expression of God's redeeming love for us. In this passage of Scripture, here's how I would like to sort of navigate it or mark it. There are three phrases that Jesus uses in this passage of Scripture as he's either going to the cross or being crucified that really are going to provide the three sort of markers, if you will, to our outline of this passage. And we're going to look at those this morning. And then surrounding those three phrases are three events that happen that are very significant as well that I want to touch on this morning. In fact, I want to begin, actually, with one of those events as we launch ourselves into this passage of Scripture. And as I encourage you many times, I would really encourage you again today, put yourself there. It's one of the ways that the Bible can come alive to us is by imagining yourself physically present as all of this is going on. Remember, Jerusalem at this point would have been filled with people. This was during Passover. So thousands upon thousands of extra people would have been there during this time than normal. The streets would have been flooded with people, and you and I could have been one of those spectators, if you will, to the events that were taking place. As we enter into the passage this morning, Jesus has already been sentenced to death. He's already experienced several trials and several beatings. He's had his beard pulled out. He's had a crown of thorns placed upon his head, and he's been scourged by the Roman soldiers. And he is on his way to a place that Luke calls the skull, or as we know it, Golgotha. As he is going there, he is already sort of in pre-shock to what he's already experienced. He's already in a very physically weakened condition. And therefore, the Roman authorities do not want Jesus to die on his way to the cross. 
And we also know that obviously that's not God's plan as well. So at this point, the Roman soldiers grab a spectator, a bystander from the crowd and pull him in to carry Jesus's cross the rest of the way to the skull. And we note there that Luke names him. His name is Simon of Cyrene. What is significant about this? Well, first of all, we are reminded that Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% human. And in his 100% humanity, this man was suffering tremendously. As I said, probably sort of experiencing pre-shock symptoms at this point. Has already suffered severe blood loss. And we can't even imagine the pain at every nerve ending, if you will, in Jesus' body at this point. So there's that. But then you have this man who was just there that day as part of the crowd, and now all of a sudden the Roman soldiers are compelling him to carry the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure that was not something that Simon planned on doing that day. That was not something that Simon could foresee doing that day. But all of a sudden now, this Roman cross is placed on his back, and now he's going to carry it the rest of the way. It certainly reminds me of the words of Jesus to his followers when he says, if anyone wants to be my follower or my disciple, he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. And that's exactly what Simon was doing. He was taking up the cross of Jesus and he was following behind all the way to the place of Jesus' crucifixion. Why is this significant? It's significant because it is a great reminder to us that again, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to deny ourselves, to live a life of selflessness and sacrifice and even surrender to the will of God. And obviously, humanly, we, we chafe at that at times. We, we fight against that at times. We, we don't want to carry a cross. We don't want to die to self. But I want us to be reminded today that when we are willing to carry our cross, there are significant things that happen that make an impact on others and even ourselves that, that we maybe can't even foresee as well. See, there's no record that up to this point in Simon's life that he was a believer in Jesus Christ. But here's what we do know for sure, that after Simon carried that cross of Jesus that day, he was so profoundly impacted that he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he had two sons, sons that are named in the Gospel of Mark 
and again by the Apostle Paul. Their names are Alexander and Rufus. And his two sons became great servants of God in the early church. They became great followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if it wasn't because of what their father did that day and how watching their father do that and being there as all those events unfolded had a tremendous impact upon those two young men. We also learn from extra-biblical literature that Simon's wife became somewhat of a mother figure to the Apostle Paul. So here's this man who's being compelled to carry a cross, a cross that he probably never wanted to carry. And yet you look at how it was used in his life and in the life of even his family and how down through the centuries, how that one act of carrying that cross made such a difference in so many other people's lives, it became this, this domino effect. And the reason I want to point that out at the very beginning of our time in God's Word today is because, again, you and I may fight against taking up our cross daily and following the Lord. But we must trust that this is God's way and God's plan for us as one of his followers and disciples. And that many of the times in our life when we have to carry a cross, it's always, why me, God? Why do I have this cross that I'm carrying? And you know what? Sometimes we have to be reminded that God asking us to carry that cross may not have anything to do with us. It may. It may benefit and bless our lives as well, but it might have everything to do with somebody else. The impact the influence that someone else may get from us being willing to carry that cross and to do it in a Christ-honoring way. So there's that. Then, as Luke proceeds in the story, you see Jesus there walking towards the place of crucifixion. And Luke tells us that there's this this group of mourners, if you will, who are following Jesus. And they're weeping and they're, they're wailing. We don't know because they had professional mourners that they would hire at times. Like, we don't know whether this was genuine or whether this was just what they did. But here's what we do know. We know that as Jesus hears, especially this group of women weeping and wailing, that he turns to them and he makes this first statement that I want to pause and take a look at this morning. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Here we see Jesus is thinking of others all the way to the very end of his life. He's not thinking of himself. He even says that. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And in that statement is this poignant warning 
that really from Jesus echoes down through the centuries of time. Because Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I know what awaits me. Joy awaits me and glory awaits me. But for those of you who reject me, the only thing that awaits you is misery. You will perish in your sin. You will experience eternally the loss of all that is worthwhile, and you will be eternally separated from the God who loves you more than anything or anyone else in this universe. It's a horrible fate. And so Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. Also, he's going to instruct them that judgment is coming to Israel because they rejected their Messiah. And we know that in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened with the Roman army. They came through and basically destroyed Jerusalem and Israel. There is a heavy price to pay. God gives us a choice of whether we want to accept Jesus as our Savior, but Jesus makes no bones about it. He says to all of us down through the ages, if you don't turn to me and don't allow me to pay the penalty for your sin, then that means you're choosing to do that yourself. And that is a horrible, eternal consequence for rejecting Jesus Christ. So today we must pause and and we must examine Have I turned to Jesus Christ? Or am I in that position where he's saying those same words to me today? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because unless you come to a place in your life where you turn to me as your Savior, you will suffer eternally for your sin. And there is no hope, no peace, no joy, in your eternal future at all. Notice also in this statement where Jesus is expressing that he's thinking of others rather than himself, that on his way to the cross, he's not wallowing in self-pity, saying, why is this happening to me? He's not screaming about the injustice of it all, because as we saw last week, there's nothing but injustice about all of this. And yet he understands that in the plan of God, in this monstrous injustice, God has designed a means of victory because that's what God does. He can work all things together for good to those who love God, even those monstrous injustices that we can be a part of in our life and experience because it was going to be out of the death of Jesus that you and I were able to receive life. And I want to say this today as well. I want all of us to know today that Jesus is thinking of us today. He's thinking of you today. I believe that when he was on the cross, you and I were on his mind. And that Jesus is thinking about you today. His thoughts are ever toward you today. So as we think about all the events surrounding the crucifixion, I want you to think about the the tremendous 
greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in that in that moment, even after he's suffered so horribly and he's in such pain, that he's not thinking of himself at that moment. He's thinking of others. That's how great our Savior is. It doesn't end there. As you move on into the passage, we do come to that place where Luke just uses three words to describe sort of the climax of redemptive history. He says, and when they brought him to the place of the skull, Golgotha, they crucified him. What else can you say? In fact, sometimes words sort of take away from what's happening. And I think that's why the Bible is so simplistic in its description of what's happening here, because I, I don't think that more words could have really done it justice anyway. Luke wants us to understand who it is who is on the cross. And when we understand who it is who's on the cross, then is anything really going to describe adequately what's happening there? So Luke simply says, they crucified him. And let me repeat again. I believe that it will take all of eternity even to begin to fathom the significance and scope that mark God's supreme expression of redeeming love for you and I. As you move then a little bit further, Jesus is saying something. And here's the next phrase I want us to examine this morning. Beyond daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, is this phrase that Jesus now utters from the cross. And remember, what did it take to get him up there? The Romans were experts at crucifixion. Through trial and error of many, many, many years, they had perfected crucifying human bodies. They knew exactly where to drive the, the stakes into the to the hands and into the feet so that no bones would really be broken, where no major arteries would be hit. They, were, they knew the anatomy of the human body because they wanted the person who was being crucified to suffer and to suffer for a long time. So that's why most times when people were crucified, they either died of slow blood loss or shock, but most of the time they died by asphyxiation. They literally could not get breath into their lungs anymore. A horrible way to die. You see, the, the Romans would, would place the body on a cross to the point where even though they were exhausted and all of that, if they wanted to breathe, they literally had to put the weight of their body into those spikes and pull themselves up to allow their lungs to expand to get air in. And then when they could no longer hold themselves at that point, they had to go back down until they could raise themselves back up. It was a horrible, 
way to die. And yet in the midst of all this, not only do we see our Savior thinking of others to the very end of his life, but loving others to the very end of his life. When he says these words, Father, forgive them. Oh. Interceding for those who are crucifying him. But yet it goes even further than that. You see, Luke is using the imperfect tense of the Greek language here. And what that simply means is, this was not the only time that Jesus uttered the words, Father, forgive them. By using the imperfect tense of the language, he is telling us that this is what Jesus was saying over and over and over again throughout his crucifixion. He was saying... Father, forgive them when they pulled out his beard. He was saying, Father, forgive them when they placed a crown of thorns upon his head. He was saying, Father, forgive them when they drove the spikes into his hands and into his feet. They were saying, he was saying, Father, forgive them when they beat him and mocked him. He was saying, Father, forgive them over and over and over again, because that's the love that our Savior has, even for those who are his enemy. There is no greater love than that. He's up there, and as we saw last week, totally innocent. The perfect, sinless, without spot, without blemish Lamb of God, and there he is, taking our place and saying to his father, forgive them, forgive them. Do you know Jesus still says that today? Even when you and I sin and fall short of the glory of God, Father, forgive them. I paid for their sin. Every sin that we will ever commit anything that we've ever done, we can hear Jesus speak those words over our lives. Father, forgive them. What love. It doesn't matter how much we've done or what we've done. We can find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for us. And his sacrifice for us is sufficient to cover each and every sin and the enormity of our sin throughout our whole life. In fact, I love what the author of Hebrews says to us in Hebrews 7, verse 25. He says, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Completely. When Jesus saves us, we are saved completely, entirely. There's no such thing as being half saved. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are completely saved. And that word also carries with it the meaning that we are saved by him through everything and through all time. Think about it. You see, even after we become Christians, we need saving, we need delivering, we need rescuing. 
And the author of Hebrews is saying, our Jesus is sufficient. He is enough to save you and I through everything we'll ever go through and through all time. There will never be a time, even throughout eternity, where Jesus will not be saving. Because we're going to even need to be dependent and reliant on him even when we get to glory. Because there's never a time where we're going to be independent of our need for God in our life. He's always going to be saving because he loves us that much. And maybe you're here this morning or you're watching from your homes this morning and you're in need of a rescue. You're in need of deliverance. You're in need of saving. Or maybe you've never turned to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I want you to know today that when you turn to him and when you have him in your life, you have the perfect Savior. In fact, there is no other Savior other than Jesus Christ. And there's no one who can better save you and rescue you and deliver you than Jesus Christ. He is our complete and sufficient Savior. And when you have him as your Savior, there is no greater salvation, no more complete salvation, no more entire salvation than what you and I have in him. He loves you. And no one will ever love you more than Jesus And the phrase, Father, forgive them, even while he's hanging on the cross, is something you and I need to always come back to and be reminded of the greatness of our Savior. As you move then through the passage, you come to this part of the passage where people are continuing to mock him. The religious leaders cry out to him, ah, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Even the soldiers are like, save yourself if you're the Christ. And then even one of the criminals crucified on one side of him turns to him and says, hey, save yourself and us. Here's the thing. If Jesus saves himself that day, then none of us can be saved. The whole reason you and I are able to be saved is because he didn't save himself, and he could have, because he's the son of God. He didn't stay on that cross because of the nails or the spikes. He didn't stay on that cross because of the strength of the Roman Empire or the influence of the, of the Hebrew leaders. He stayed on that cross out of his love for us. He willingly stayed there to pay for our sin. And so here they are mocking him, save yourself. If he saved himself, then none of us could be saved. It reminds me of the verse that Jesus shared with his disciples at one point. He says, I tell you a solemn truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces a great harvest. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. Through his death, many 
would be able to experience life. And it's the kind, again, of life that Jesus calls us to, to take up our cross, to die to self, so that God can use our life to bring others into the kingdom and to affect other people's lives by us being willing to be selfless and sacrificial and surrender our lives to God. Exactly like Jesus Christ. Then we come to the final phrase that I want to examine today that Jesus says. As he's hanging there between two thieves, the one mocking him, the other rebuking the one who's mocking him, and saying, man, we are hanging here because we deserve to hang here. He doesn't. And so the other thief turns to Jesus at this point and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here's the words I want us to see today with fresh eyes. Jesus turns to him and says these words, today you will be with me in paradise. And those words of Jesus, while he's on the cross, should forever alter the way you and I look at death. Now, before we get to those words, let me say a few other words about what's just happened. This is a great reminder to us of what the Bible teaches, that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Here is a man who has no opportunity to do any good work in his life. Here is a man who has no opportunity to be baptized, for those that say you have to be baptized to go to heaven. Here's a man who has no opportunity to ever partake of the Lord's table, for those who say, oh, you must partake of the Lord's table to go to heaven. Here's a man who had no opportunity to do anything. He was clearly in the last minutes of his human life and yet Jesus, because of his faith in him, promises him eternity in heaven. Now, obviously, because this man waited to the end of his life to turn to Jesus, he had no opportunity to live for Jesus and to experience the life that Jesus had for him here on earth. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is saying to him, your faith alone in me is enough even as you're taking your last breath. And I hope that that will even encourage some of you who have family members and friends and coworkers and, and others in your life who have yet to accept Jesus Christ. Listen, there is hope for all of us up until we take our last breath with God because he's not only a savior who thinks of others to the very end, who loves others to the very end, but who can save others to the very end. In fact, at times where I've done memorial services for those that maybe none of us knew where they stood with God, I try to give the family and friends hope by saying, look, we don't know what took place in their heart before they went out into eternity. None of us are in that position to make that kind of judgment. Here's what we do know. God thought of them to the very end, loved them to the very end, and was willing to save them to the very end. And that's what we've got to leave our hope in. 
But I want to get back to the words. First of all, the word today. Jesus is saying to this criminal who's, who's turned to him in faith, today you'll be in heaven. Today. There's no purgatory. There's no, like, penance. There's no, like, I've got to go somewhere and, and work things out in order to get. No. Jesus says to this man, today you're with me. Today. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says. The moment your loved one or friend died in Christ, they went immediately to be with the Lord. The moment you and I die in Christ, we don't have to wait and hang around for whatever. We go immediately into the presence of God. That's the hope Jesus gives us, and that's the fear that he takes out, the sting of death by his words. The next words I want us to concentrate on in that phrase is the words with me. Jesus not only says today, he says, oh, you're not just going to heaven. We're going to be together. You're going to be with me, Jesus, when you get there. Because I'm going to be there too. In fact, that's what makes heaven so great. It's not that it's such a glorious place and there's no sin and all of that, but the, the thing that makes heaven, heaven is the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is saying to this man, I'll give you comfort even at the very end of your life. Today, you will be with me. And every last one of us that knows Jesus as our Savior, that's what we get to look forward to. That the second we die, we're going to see Jesus. And then, the other word I want us to concentrate on is how Jesus describes heaven. He uses the word paradise. If Jesus uses the word paradise, I can only imagine how amazing this place is. It, it's, there are no adequate words. And God has not really even come close to fully revealing what heaven is going to be like. There's really not a lot of specifics about heaven, even in the Bible. But all I need to know is if my Lord and Savior describes it as paradise, that's good enough for me. Paradise. So again, I, I want to give comfort and hope and encouragement to any of you. All of us have loved ones already there. I want you to know that they're in paradise. There's no better place in the universe for them to be. And I hope you have that hope. Because when you and I die, and we will, someday some pastor, some minister, some priest is going to be doing our memorial service. That that day that you close your eyes in death, you can close your eyes with that same hope and that same comfort that this man who was dying next to Jesus that day could close his eyes in death in just a few minutes when he knew, today I'm going to be with Jesus in a place called paradise. I hope that we will allow the words of Jesus in this passage to alter the way we look at death, to take the sting and fear out of it, because that's one of the purposes for why Jesus said what he said. Two more things I'd like to share in this passage. 
there's another significant event that takes place, and this is especially significant to those of you that have been with me and following along in our Wednesday night series in the book of Exodus. We read that the veil or curtain of the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, which was literally symbolic of the presence of God, that the, the temple curtain or veil was split in two from top to bottom. What God was signifying is the way now into the presence of God has been opened for anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus as their Savior. And the reason why that should really resonate with those of us who've went through the book of Exodus is we are reminded there that up until this time in history, you and I as human beings could not enter into the presence of God or experience the presence of God in such an intimate way. Only the high priest and only once a year on the day of atonement could enter in to the holy of holies and be in the presence of God. But now, through Jesus, you and I can enter into the presence of God anytime we want. What a privilege, what an honor, what an opportunity we have that so many before the sacrifice of Christ never had that opportunity or privilege or honor. And we get to experience it every day of our lives, multiple times a day if we want to. And then one other. I want us to see that Jesus' death had such a profound effect on all those who were present. You will notice that Luke records for us that many, many people went home after witnessing the death of Jesus and they beat their breasts. It was a Jewish expression of, of grieving and mourning. The same people that were so desirous to see Jesus dead who cried out in Pilate's hall, crucify him, crucify him, now aren't feeling so good about things. All of a sudden, what they really thought they wanted isn't doing it for them. And they're going home with not a good feeling about what took place that day. And then you have the Roman centurion, who Luke records for us, basically watches how Jesus dies and who Jesus is and declares this man was guiltless. This, this man was innocent. And Mark records for us that this very same centurion also expresses truly this was God's son. See, the death of Jesus had a profound effect upon all those there that day. because they were witnessing a Savior who was thinking of others to the very end, who was loving others to the very end, who was saving others to the very end. I wonder today, how is the death of Jesus Christ, how is this passage of Scripture that reveals to us some events surrounding our dear Lord's death and crucifixion, how is it affecting us today? 
And if nothing else, I hope that all of us will leave here today, maybe not beating our chests, but realizing how much we are loved. And that we will receive the love that God has for us today. And that we will realize anew just how much God loves us. If you and I can leave here today filled up with the love of God, there's no better way to leave the house of God. But if you're here today and you've not yet opened up your heart to the love of God, I pray and plead with you, make that happen today. Open up your heart to the love of Jesus. No one will ever love you more than Jesus does. I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come. And as they're coming, I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me and join me in prayer. Oh, God. May all of us, Lord, be affected by what we've heard here today and experienced here today. God, as we re-examine your death and how you died, I pray that it might make a renewed impact upon our lives. I pray more than anything, Lord, that all of us would allow the the waterfall of your love to just flow down upon us today. That we might realize, Lord, anew just how much you love us. God, we may go out into eternity without Christ, but we will never go out into eternity unloved by you. For God so loved the world. Oh, how he loves us. And God, may we just receive your love for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.